is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. I bet you're all rapping along right now, aren't you? It's of course a theme tune to the awesome Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I'm so excited to be joined today by one of its stars. She was Will Smith's cousin Hilary Banks and is now doing something so amazing after that thing she did. Please welcome Karen Parsons. Karen. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm so pleased I managed to catch you at this opportune moment because you've just celebrated the 30th anniversary of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and you filmed a special reunion show recently. Yeah, we did. I gather it was an emotional affair. Oh no, to say the least. It was a roller coaster of emotions and I think the next, I think when it was done, I was so spent. I was so completely like raw and spent, but I felt incredible. But it was far more emotional than I, I knew it was going to be. It always is a little bit whenever we see each other we don't get to see each other usually all together. Mm. It's usually, you know, Daphne and I see each other at a Comic-Con event or I visit Tatiana or we see each other at some kind of event. You know, Alfonso, if I'm on, in L.A., I get to see Will I see now every like two years, if I'm lucky. Um, you know, if he comes to New York, he might say I'm in New York, you know, but I don't get to see him nearly as much. And Joseph, obviously, because he's in England, it's mm. even, you know, it's, it's rough to see him, but because when he does come to the States, you know, we do make a more concerted effort to get together. But still, it's usually like a wedding or a funeral or something like that. We just don't get to all get together. And um, so I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, our usual kind of, you know, bittersweet because we want to be with each other longer, but it's good to be together thing. It really floored me how truly emotional it was (laughs) and and how... um, I mean, really, I think there was also the whole 30-year part of it that struck us all particularly. It hit me somehow more than I realized it would. Us all together, the way we were together, and really contemplating, really thinking about. And the show, they made, the producers did this to us, the directors (laughs) did this to us. They, They surprised us with things, and they took us back in a way that I didn't expect to go back and had feelings I didn't even expect to um, kind of reveal or feel. It was it was beautiful though, and mm-hmm. to be with those people in that very intimate, intimate, even though you've got his cameras on you, <laughs> strangely intimate uh, way was it was really something special. Mm. You know, it was. Um, I know it's going to be on HBO Max in the US. But I hope it gets screened over here in the UK. I hope so too. <laughs> At some point, I hope great. so too. Um, you guys don't have HBO Max, huh? No. They'll make their way over there. <laughs> that, you know, Netflix did, right? They'll make their way over there. Um, it's. I hope so. It's supposed to be for us. It's in no- November, end of November. Um, thanks around our Thanksgiving time mm-hmm. um, is when they've said. So they haven't put anything, any strict date on it yet. But I certainly hope you guys will get a chance to see it. I, I don't know what they're going to put together with this thing. <laughs> I, 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 at the time, I remember we were all saying, this is going to be like a three-parter. How are they going to make this one part? <laughs> There's, it felt like there was so much to throw into a special, like a, a one-hour special or something. It felt very dense. And um, I just feel like there was so much to it. I don't know when they edited it down. You know, I, I, I would, I'm dying to see if they do edit it down to an hour. I want to see the cut footage. I want to see all of it because there was so much and it was good. It was really good. You know, they kept laughing at us because they would, they kept us away from each other. We all had to stay at different hotels so we couldn't get together. Because I was excited at first. I was like, oh, cool. Elf and I will be, you know, we'll be able to get together and Ta and Daphne. And I figured, you know, we'd go and meet down, you know, but of course it's Corona time. You couldn't just like go and just casually meet in the hotel bar someplace anyway. (laughs) But I thought at least we'll somehow we'll get together, you know, we'll socially, you know, we'll be distant in in some way. Maybe not, you know, tested like crazy. But um, I figured we'd do that. But then no, they put us in all different hotels because they wanted to have us get together and have that moment on camera when we finally got to see each other. (laughs) 
which is, you know, it's surprise. It, and there, yeah, it's like it's like a huge surprise. But but at the same time, it it, di- it does have something different than if we were just strolled in, like I just saw you for breakfast, <laughs> you know. It it um it, it had something, you know, and also all together. But um, they managed to surprise us after 30 years. I don't know how they did that, but they did. They managed to surprise us and um, and have it full of, of all of these, you know, tickly-feely things happening. <laughs> um, I've gotten ahead of myself already, jumping straight into it. So now let's properly head into the nostalgia zone. The show was massive here in England, but when you first started making it pre-internet and social media, did you know how far the influence of the show had spread or would spread? No, no way, no way. I mean, I couldn't have possibly imagined, you know, I was working as a hostess at a restaurant and... I was auditioning like crazy for commercials and episodics and films, you know, getting a little thing here and there if I was lucky, but just, you know, working in my, my acting workshop and happy. I was just, I was fine and good and, you know, excited doing all of this. When I got the show, I was beside myself. But after we shot the pilot, I went back to my job as a hostess because, you know, I don't know what was going to happen with that show. It was fun. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, was, it was amazing to be you know, shooting in front of a live audience and, and meeting these great people. Will and um, some other people from the show would come by on Sundays when I would be at, at work before we opened, you know, and I'd be at the bar doing the books and stuff and they come to the window and just laugh at me point and laugh at me because I they're like what are you doing here and I said I don't know why, why would I leave I have a good job we, you know we hadn't get picked up yet and then of course we got picked up for however many episodes and so I you know quit my job and my life changed but when you're shooting the show in front of a live audience, it's very much like a play. You know, you've got this audience of, I don't know, two, mm-hmm. 250, 300. I don't know how many people are out there. But we do it like a play and you go from set to set. We're doing it in front of the writers, producers, and our guests, our audience. So that's who we're doing it for on Friday nights. For me, that's what it felt like. You know, yeah, the cameras are following us around and everything. We've blocked it for camera. But it's still, for me... Uh, I had a hard time translating that it was going into these cameras, you know, and into the homes of people, (laughs) not only across this country, but then it would go to other countries across the world and that it would go across decades. Mm. I couldn't feel any of that. I felt like it was just us and our little studio audience. Wasn't that fun? Let's go out and get drinks. You know, (laughs) that's what it was like. It was like every Friday, it was like, that was a really great show. Where are you going to go? Let's go over here. Okay. What are you going to get? You know, I'll run to the bar and get you something. And you just hang out and then you have your weekend recharge and next week you do it again. But I didn't, because also I was going into my, when I was in my life, I wasn't, getting stopped by people on the street. I didn't have people going, oh my God, it's Hillary. That wasn't happening. We ran, we did the show for six years. And in the very beginning, Will did say, now the first thing you're going to, because he had already had his stardom with being the Fresh Prince rapper. With Jazzy Jeff, yeah. Yeah, so he, so the first thing that's going to happen, you're going to realize you can't go to the mall. And I was like, oh, okay, can't go to the mall. And then I went to the mall and I went to the mall again. <laughs> I went to the mall again. <laughs> I could go to the mall. <laughs> Years later, I was still going to the mall. I could go to the mall now, actually. <laughs> um, but it was fine. And, uh, you know, it was different for boys and girls. I will say that because Janet Hubert and I, when we would go out, were less likely to be recognized than the boys, partially because they had to beat us into shape, right? They put makeup and hair and clothes <laughs> and do all this stuff. You know, and we're very casual you know, otherwise. So in the beginning, that was very funny to me. Um, But still, it wasn't like we were getting so recognized. We weren't, you know, we have TV Guide here. We weren't in TV Guide's top 10. You know, whenever I went to the supermarket, I always picked up the TV Guide 
And we'll look and see, like, where were we in the ratings? Yeah, nowhere. <laughs> oh, well. You know, and um, that was that. So we, we were we were on the show that we also seemed like, you know, black audiences knew us more. And Cosby was a big deal. Mm. Uh, friends came along and they became a huge deal. But, you know. For Prince of Bel-Air, people love the show. People love to hang out at our sets. And we were having a great time. We were having a great <laughs> life, you know. If I got nominated for any awards, they were like NAACP Image Awards or Soul Train Awards type of thing. Mm. And, I, and I never won, <laughs> you know. So, But you were nominated. I was nominated. It was great. But, it, it, you know, and I think there were other people that were bigger stars in shows that were other that were big, bigger at the time that we were doing it, and I think that's one of the strange things about this show is the longevity it's had and the resurgence mm. it's had, because I feel like the show's more popular today than it ever was when we were definitely not when we were doing it. But well, I mean, it was it was big here in England right away, unlike in the U.S. Mm. At the time when Fresh Prince started, we had four TV channels here oh <laughs> right that's that's sweet <laughs> <laughs> and um i think even when fresh prince finished we still had four a year later we then got five channels <laughs> but um because we only had four channels um the amount of stuff that we had access to was far less than limited the amount of stuff that was on the state so for us Fresh Prince was massive. You know, it'd be on after The Simpsons on BBC Two. Simpsons would be on at six and yeah. Fresh Prince would be on at 625. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it was really popular here. Yeah. It was at, at the time. I don't know anyone that didn't watch Fresh Prince. Well, I we were all doing I the Carlton dance and it was, it was like, it was massive here. I should have been vacationing there. Yeah, well, it's funny because Will was on... Graham Norton. I saw that. Um, and he talked about how his song Boom Shake the Room was only a hit in this country. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I knew all the words to it. It was, it was, Fresh Prince was massive here. Isn't that funny though? I mean, that's, it's like it, it, that, you know, it was huge there when it wasn't so much here. And then here, like, you know, all this time later, now the show is a big deal here, a bigger deal. I don't know, a big, big deal. But I mean, now I feel like there's more attention on the show, even like right after the show went off the air, you know, I went through, I had a couple instances where I was, I was at uh, castings at auditions and I had to, I had to explain to the casting director, the show, what I had done before, like, you know, I was on a show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, yeah. What, no, and what, yeah, what was, and who did you, were you on a few episodes or? Really? And I'm like, yeah, I was, I was a regular. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I played cousin Hillary. Um, it was a cousin. It was Will Smith's cousin. You know, I'm like trying to explain. And I, it felt like the show had just poof, kind of disappeared. That was immediately after, that was in the first few years afterwards. So it was a different, and then, you know some years passed and all of a sudden I think people who hadn't seen it originally caught on to the reruns of it mm. and um hopefully those casting people who had no idea what the show was finally <laughs> caught up and watched the thing thing because it's cute <laughs> um but you know it just had it, it didn't so I wasn't feeling the popularity thing that you guys maybe were feeling um the same way I think Will's experience was quite different you know, he was kind of also becoming a mega, mega star. Mm. But it was different for me. It was different from, for Alfonso and then for all of us, I think. And then if you, you know, I think maybe, I know uh, after, I actually didn't start streaming. It wasn't streaming here, but it was streaming there uh, and in Canada as well. And, and then it just seemed like it had this kind of resurgence where mm. people started, to, maybe people were discovering it that they hadn't. It's it's wonderful, though, that I've had so many people say, and this has gone decade after decade, it was my favorite show, now it's my kid's favorite show. And then 10 years go by and someone else says, it was my favorite show, now it's my kid's favorite show. And it, it, it's had more years. It was my favorite show, now it's my kid. And I'm just like, wow, this is the gift that keeps on giving. It's just like, this is cool. Like how it managed to have that kind of life. Mm. Um, and people watch it now and still laugh, still get it, 
it has resonance mm. and you know it's still vital i love that that's yeah great i mean i really we had amazing writers and a really great cast and we had will smith you know mm. those are all really really fortunate to have these things um if i could i'd like to talk about some of my favorite and most memorable scenes from the show mm-hmm. um if you wouldn't mind sharing your memories of them at the same time so firstly uh, one of my favorite episodes is the one where hillary drops out of school and she's blackmailed by both will and carlton yeah <laughs> And there's this great dinner table scene where you're barking like a dog and slapping Will upside the head. Yes, <laughs> I imagine I imagine that might have taken a few a few times, uh, a, few. a few attempts to film. Yeah, that was tricky. <laughs> that was um, whenever I'm when I'm asked. Yes, that's my favorite episode. That was my favorite episode to shoot, for sure, for a number of reasons. Um, one, you know, Hillary was good for coming in with zingers here and there, but we didn't have a lot of character arc shows where I'm in every scene. So it was fun to get to work. <laughs> that was fun. It was also, it was in the first season and I had said to, you know, people, oh, I just, I just think people are going to hate this character. What do they think of her? It was new finding out what people thought about Hillary. And in the scene where Alfonso, or Carlton, would I go to him for help because Will is blackmailing me? He's making me wash his dirty drawers or you know, whatever. <laughs> and when he turns to me and says, will you clean mine? <laughs> and turns on me. And I, I'm looking at him like, oh, I can't believe you. And the audience, the studio audience, they didn't just clap or go, yay. They started stomping in the stands like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. They were just like <laughs> rabid, like, yes. <laughs> she got hers. I mean, they just went. <laughs> and I'm, we're sitting there trying to hold straight faces. If you ever see the episode, you'll see how they keep cutting back and forth to us. And I'm I'm smiling because I'm trying to contain my, I'm trying to make the smile look like a, I can't believe you. But of course, it's me laughing because I was like, all I could think of was, oh my God, they really hate me. <laughs> And then we did the we did the dinner scene, and um, that was so much fun, and it worked out really well. Like we, I think we all had a lot of fun with the mechanics of it, and um, and it's fun when things work, especially when you're doing complicated stuff, and it boom 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 boom, and it does work. So it was fun, but um, uh, it did set the precedent for us not being able to do not to being able to get through dinner scene or t- seated scenes without. <laughs> incredible giggles I mean for those six years for the rest of the show life of the show whenever they wrote in a table scene we all went oh no this isn't gonna work you guys know this and so sure enough we'd sit down to a dinner table scene and we would just something would happen and we would start getting the giggles and you know Will would say something funny about James eating on the set or something (laughs) he wasn't supposed to be eating in between takes or something and James would get mad at him and then we'd all get the giggles (laughs) stifling laughs through the whole thing and it all started with that dinner table scene because it was so fun and funny that was a great that was a really fun episode I'd like to talk about Jeffrey I don't know uh, maybe it's because he's English and it's the way that he delivers the lines, maybe. But Jeffrey had some great one-liner put downs. <laughs> oh my god, he's the best. We all went on Joan Rivers' show years, you know, back when, and every then she asked us all, like, if you couldn't be your character, who would you be? And everybody said Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Joseph too. I mean, Joe Marcel is he made Jeffrey. I mean, he's just he's dry, and there's this whole under current of like who this character is who this man really is like what's his story that that joseph he's got is he also he has kind of a he's wicked he's got a wicked thing to him kind of sly like he's got a secret and uh he's all knowing you know so that's a lot i mean joseph's got that kind of sensibility about him too and yeah definitely being british i mean come on Uh, there was also a lovely scene between you and Tatiana, who obviously, of course, plays Ashley. And it was a rare moment where Hillary wasn't so ditzy when Ashley comes to her and asks her about losing her virginity. And and I felt like that was like a, actually like a real sisterly relationship that, that you had mm-hmm. with not just Hillary with Ashley, but also one that you shared with Tatiana as well. I was why I am wild about her. I am wild about her. 
I always was. I loved that girl. And every summer, you could ask my good friends, every summer, I would say, when we go back to work this year, I just know she's going to pull away from me, you know, because we were very close. (laughs) And I was afraid as a young girl, you know, she was, she meant everything to me, but she's a young girl and she's going to change. And every summer I stressed it and I come back to work and she was my girl. She was there. You know, we were just tight all over again. And and I'm happy to say that, you know, all these years later, it's the same way. It was, it was really amazing to watch her on the show. She was so, she was always so sharp, so smart, so sensitive. And, you know, and she went on to Harvard and she's just like, forget it. She's, she's amazing. But she had, you know, she had great family. She has a great family that were very present on the set, her parents, her sisters. And it was really beautiful to watch. And they were not. They were like really, they were raising this child actor very conscientiously. And she was very respectful of how she was being raised and the limitations that she had that maybe the kids from Saved by the Bell next door didn't have, you know. And it served her well, clearly. And she was just this, I just watched and thought, God, I want to be that kind of parent. You know, this is just, she's great. And um, to this day, we're like, we're as close as ever. I mean, she's my sister, period. I love her so much. And I'm just, it's to say pr- I'm proud of her is like, it just doesn't say enough. I just, uh, I, and I'm not surprised, I was never surprised by how great she was. How, you know, she's just, cause she's always been amazing. You had Saved by the Bell next door? Sure did. Well, I guess it must be those big sound studios, right? Yeah, we were, when the last three years of the show, we were at NBC Studios. They were right next door. Rivalry? Does rivalry occur? Or you play no, jokes on them? No, no. I mean, I think like I think Alfonso and Tatiana were friends with people on the show. <laughs> I wasn't friends with. I mean, I didn't know them like that. Um, I was a little older, but they were. I think they they were friends. I think sometimes they, you know, Alf would be like, "Gonna go hang out with these guys after work," kind of thing. <laughs> Speaking of Alfonso, obviously he's well known for the Carlton dance, but sure. there were. I remember a lot, a lot of serious issues on the show that were tackled and. Carlton had his fair share of of issues that he dealt with. And I remember one quite clearly was when he bought a gun. Yeah. Because he was mugged with Will and Will took a bullet for him. And his way of feeling like he could defend himself was getting a gun and, you know, perhaps seeking vengeance. I mean, it was quite, I guess, for the the time when the show was out, you know, when you think about what's happening now with gun violence and stuff, you know, quite progressive for dealing with those issues at the time. Yeah. And on a sitcom with a black cast as well. I think it was, yeah, it was really, I think it's really great the balance the show managed to have because sometimes those shows that do like, you know, a very special Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, when they do those shows, Mm -hmm. sometimes they can really fall flat and be too earnest. And the thing with the Fresh Prince, I mean, I'm always amazed at how some of those shows really hit people. I think a lot of it is there was so much comedy and that's the beauty of with comedy is you, you get people wide open with a big belly laugh and then you hit them right in the solar plexus. You know, you're like, you're hitting right in the stomach and you're just like, there you go. Now, you know, with uh, something very deep and meaningful and unexpected, right? You hit them mm. right in the gut. And I think um, the show managed to do that quite a bit. You know, not quite a bit, but when it had those shows, I think it was like, you're you're so open. You know these characters. You're so invested. You laugh a lot. You trust them. And then something happens that's unexpected and heavier. I think there's this, this part of people that was just like wide open and mm. trusting and available to receive it, you know. Mm. Um, and they delivered it well. You know, they still man- managed to have humor in a, in a few little comic relief places that you just where you needed it. Yeah. The balance was really good. There was a very talented group of people. Like I said, the writers were pretty amazing. Our director was fantastic. And, you know, Will and Alf, their chemistry and dynamic was so brilliant. They were like, they were really like the old teams that we would you see there. You know, there were lots of characters in history of, you know, the Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy and these people mm-hmm. that work off of each other well. They worked so well off of each other. Neither one of them ever trying to steal the spotlight from the other. They just kind of went with the the dance, the flow of what it needed. And and they did it well with um, even with the dramatic stuff. 
And I think the scene that probably had one of the biggest impacts was when Will's dad left him mm-hmm. and Will breaks down and he has the line where he says, how come he doesn't want me no more? Mm-hmm. And cries with, with Uncle Phil. And and I guess, as you say, that's the power of great comedy comes when a dramatic scene happens. And I guess that kind of really showed Will's dramatic acting chops, if you like. Absolutely. You know, we've got this guy who's, you know, Will's special. We all know it. But he, when Will wants something, he wants to know something. He's He wants to know all about any subject. He's going to know all about it like over the weekend, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you'll see him on Monday and he's like, I learned everything. I read the encyclopedia last weekend. That's what I did. I didn't go out. Um, but that's Will. Like he's, he's really intense, incredibly curious, driven. And I've never known anyone to have more confidence in my life. Um, so he's just, he jumps full face first into the pool, regardless of, he doesn't think about messing up or belly flopping and it's beautiful. He's like a child that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And he did it with acting, you know, when he started realizing, like, I want to be good at this. I want to do this. He would, you know, he wanted to, he remember early, early on, you know, talking about crying and tricks and stuff. And then he, later on, when it came time, like, for that, he wasn't into tricks. He was into, and I remember him talking to James Avery about very serious stuff. I remember him talking about, acting. I remember James once telling him about how, you know, when you think about it, when you're crying, most people, when they cry, are trying not to cry, which I think is a really smart, important thing to tell, especially a young actor, because everyone's always like milking the tears, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And that certainly wasn't what happened in that scene. You Mm -hmm. know, he, he was, he worked and he realized what he needed to put into it. And, um, and he put so much of himself into it. And we watched him grow as an actor, as a, you know, as a person and as an actor right before our eyes. And because it's something that mattered to him, you know, and flash forward to him, you know, with his Academy Award nominations. And you're like, duh, you know, because, you know, he has, it mattered to him. It meant something to him. So he's mm-hmm. going to get there, you know. Mm-hmm. And that scene was incredibly powerful and and I will say surprising, not that I was surprised that he was able to do it, but I think just when it came, it was one of those things that just, oh, I mean, it definitely just killed me. There's this rumor going around, though, that you can hear Karen Parsons in the background crying. <laughs> what? What? I'm not a loud crier. <laughs> if I was crying off, off behind the cameras, I was not like, Whoa, you know, making some loud noise. So I don't know who started that rumor. But I want to put an end to it right now. Set the record straight. Now. Yeah, I'll set the record straight. That is not. I don't know who's crying, making all that noise back there. But it was not me. <laughs> I need to listen to it sometime though, because what if it was me? <laughs> Oops. Would you Would you recognize your yourself if it was you crying? I wouldn't claim it. <laughs> nope, that is definitely not me. <laughs> um, Will announced a few weeks ago um, the reboot of the Fresh Prince as a. A drama series, which is yeah. very exciting. Um, but I was wondering if the original version of Fresh Prince was still going, can you imagine what Hillary would be like in today's world of social media? Because I imagine that's she'd exactly. probably be a YouTuber or an Instagram influencer. That's, that's exactly what I said. I said she would she would rule the internet. She would be like she would be the Instagram star. She'd have more followers than anybody. Kim who? That would be, I mean, she's, she's built for it, right? I mean, she's made, she would have been like, Instagram, mine. You know, it's like, that's Hillary's world, without a doubt. Awesome. Okay, so let's move away from the nostalgia zone and head into what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. After Fresh Prince ended, you wrote and starred in your own sitcom, I Lush Life. did. Along with Laurie Petty. Yeah. And I was wondering, was that a conscious decision to kind of carve out a new role for yourself to move away from being typecast as another Hillary type character? Uh, I mean, it wasn't like it was a huge departure. It wasn't like all of a sudden I was playing like some gangster, 
chick or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> she, it was not, um, it wasn't that drastic. It was more, uh, you know, Lori and I had sat down and, on cocktail napkins and <laughs> written out like a show once, you know, we were hanging out having drinks and we were like, oh, this would be really cool, this idea, this and that. And we, we used to took, um, actually it, was an, it, it came from an idea, something I had written as a film thing. And um, we kind of changed it and then we, we just made it an entirely different thing. But we wrote it on cocktail napkins. And then um, I had been approached by Yvette Lee Bowser, who I actually went to high school with. And she created the TV show Living Single. She was the creator, executive producer of Living Single. And Yvette had come up to me and asked and said to me, um, when you're done with the show, let's let's do something together. I want to do something together. And like I said, we went to high school together. So it was like, yeah, that'd be so cool, Yvette. That'd be great. And then Lori and I put this thing together. I'm like, Lori, we have to take it to Yvette. We got to take it to Yvette because I'm, you know, she, I'm sure she has a deal someplace anyway and she was interested. And so we took it to Yvette. Yvette loved it. The, the three of us kind of fine-tuned it and we did Lush Life. Now my character was still kind of I don't know, she's she floundering, but not allowed Hillary at all. And it was fun. It was a drag, though, that we got. We, what happened was we shot six episodes and then the, um, the president of Fox, because uh, we were on Fox, resigned or stepped down. And every, everybody was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Because when something happens like that and someone leaves, you were like, please don't cut the show. You know, they, and then we ended up all the new comedies were cut. And I was told they, they have to do it because if the comedies are successful, everyone says the old guard was great. And, you know, but if they're bad, they blame the new people, the new person. So it's better to just cut it, start fresh. So we got cut after six episodes, but it was quite an experience, I will say. Mm. Um, I don't know how some, I don't know how people like, you know, Oprah or Lucille Ball do it, did it. I don't understand how you can... <laughs> be in something and be producing it and, and eating it. I don't know how you can do all of it. I mean, I, I was, my schedule was insane. You know, you get up in the morning, you run to the gym, you're eating it while you're at the table reading and then you're, oh, it was just nuts. But spinning all those plates mm -hmm. must put you in good stead for what you're doing now with Sweet Blackberry. So for people that don't know, in 2005, you set up a nonprofit organization mm -hmm which brings little-known stories of African-American achievement to children. And I imagine that's a lot of place to spin <laughs> at the same time. And, and having babies. And having babies in between. <laughs> let's, let's add the babies part because that's all, that, all those, you can't let anything fall. And it's non-profit, so yeah. you're not drawing a salary from nope. it. And Yeah, it was, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, I didn't think it through. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I didn't. And thank goodness I didn't because I probably wouldn't have done it if I had given any thought. It's a lot of work. It's like, it is like mothering something. And um, my mom was a librarian. And when I was older, she was, um, she headed the Black Resource Center at her library. And she came across incredible stories that she felt compelled to share with me. And she shared a story with me about Henry Box Brown, an enslaved man who literally mailed himself to freedom in a box. And this was a true story. You know, he got in a box. They nailed it shut. They put postage on it. They sent him from Virginia to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he survived this 27-hour journey. And when they opened the box, he was free because he was across state lines. And I thought, this is, you know, the fact that we don't, we're not taught this man's story. That, we, that I don't know it. I talked to my friends. None of my friends knew it. I was like, how do we not know the story of Henry Box Brown? This is remarkable what this man did. I thought it'd be such a great children's book. And so, you know, I went about making all these notes, but the internet was new. So it was very, it was very <laughs> hard to find a lot of information. I read his, his uh, the narrative of Henry Box Brown, his, his book, his autobiography and so that told me everything but um you know it, it was one of those things I put it on the back burner forget about it and go back about things and I did this for a while until I was uh, pregnant with my daughter and then I started thinking more seriously about making this thing real so finally yeah I finally kicked it off it, but it was you know it was I was going like step by step like oh how 
how do I do this? You know, oh, I can't self-publish because it wasn't a big thing to self-publish back then. So I was like, mm, how, you know, I met an animator. Oh, wait, can we make a film out of this? You know, I was just going about it, talking to friends and thinking of doing this. Oh, I know somebody who might be able to help you with illustration. Or I know somebody who, you know, peace, 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 peace. Next thing you know, Alfred Woodard's voice is in my head while I'm writing it. Oh, I got to contact Alfred to see if she'll do it. You know, it was like, let's put on a show. I was just thinking of it like this. And... Next thing you know, I had completed it. People were responding so strongly to it. I would see it with children and see their response to it. And then I was just in too deep. At that point, you're like, (laughs) oh, I'm not leaving this. You know, it's hard, but people want it. The response I was getting was so strong that I just knew it was important to, to make. I had so many stories. I was learning all the time about people we don't hear about in history. And that was like, oh, I got to get these stories out. You know, this is going to make a big impression on the kids that hear them, you mm. know, teach them a lot about, I think it'll, it'll change the whole landscape of race for all children if they're able to appreciate the contributions of black people to, to you know, to our country and to the world. And, and I think um, it definitely is going to empower children mm. and inspire them. So, you know, so I've, I kept going and, and I'm okay now. I've got my footing. <laughs> Can you... Um talk me through some of the other stories that you've brought to life so far. Well, we did, the first story was The Journey of Henry Box Brown. Then we did Garrett's Gift, which is the story of Garrett Morgan, the inventor, and his uh, contribution of the traffic signal. He he invented many things. I think the the gas mask is really a big one for him. But uh-huh. but our audience is, you know, the gas mask was a kind of a strange one to bring to kids. <laughs> so <laughs> traffic signal. Yeah, we'll just tell them about the traffic light. <laughs> that seemed a little bit more appropriate to like something they could relate to um, instead of noxious fumes, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, so the, and then um, our third story was Dancing in the Light, the Janet Collins story, which was a story of the first black prima ballerina. Janet Collins, amazing woman, nobody ever, nobody's heard of. I, I actually heard about her first when I read her obituary in the New York uh-huh. Times. Actually, one thing that's really interesting about Janet Collins is she was asked by the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, the Russian ballet, to dance when she was 15 years old, but it was it t- completely unprecedented for a black person to be a woman to be asked to dance with the Ballet Russe. And um, she, they wanted her to do it in whiteface. He said, if you Gosh. do it, you do it. So she turned it down and was devastated. And she just worked extra hard from that moment. And she ended up becoming the first regular black player at the Met, even before Marian Anderson singing there. She uh, received the Donaldson Award, which signifies best dancer on Broadway. And she was the first black prima. And she, so she did, was this incredible groundbreaking. You know, she did it her own way. Um, but it was, you know, it was tricky. Uh, it was difficult for her to, to turn down. Um, and then we just, we finished our last story was, um, flying free, the Bessie Coleman story about the first black female aviator, Bessie Coleman, who I almost didn't do her. I wasn't sure to do her story because I felt like a lot, there were a lot of books out there about Bessie Coleman, but whenever I would bring her up, people would go, Oh yeah, Bessie Smith. I know her. And they were always thinking about the singer, Bessie Smith. And then I would say, I'd correct them and they would go, I don't know who you're talking about. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to, I think if these adults don't know, then a lot of children are not going to know. So let's tell the story. This is a woman who, you know, uh, two, two years, I think, before Amelia Earhart received her international pilot's license. Wow. Um, but she, because she, no one in the States would teach a black woman how to fly. So she had to... She got sponsorship and she took a boat to France and they taught her in Paris how to fly. And so she came back this huge hero because she had done this. And then she, you know, she's just, she's amazing. I mean, you see her smiling, beaming face and she's so young and full of energy. And it's like, it was not easy to get around. The world wasn't this small. And yet here she is saying, oh, and no one knew about flying. And here she is saying, I want to learn. I want to do it. And. And um, so she's a really inspiring person. And so we actually, I'm excited because the book of her is, is coming out. We have a book coming out in December of this year. Um, just in time for Christmas. Just in time for Christmas. 
um, Flying Free, How Bessie Coleman's Dreams Took Flight comes out December 2020. Get it? I guess, um, you know, while this is Black History, it's it's not just Black History. It's American history, right? Yes, um, yes. You know, it shouldn't be that history that's taught is, you know, every now and every now and again a black person comes along and, yes. and does something great. Like, yes. Yeah, that's the frustration, I think, with when I understand the need for Black History Month. I understand the need for the emphasis and the focus. But we shouldn't be satisfied to just be relegated ever to a, a single month. You know what I mean? I think that it's important we understand how history affects all of us and how and these sweet blackberry stories are definitely, without a doubt, these are American stories that everybody should, you know, that we need to see the influence people have had and and the contributions people have made and not sweep them under the rug. And I mean, they've, you know, that's the thing I think it's also been difficult to face is how much of these things have been deliberately um, swept under the rug. Mm. Well, you know, that's kind of difficult to look at and say, that happened. These things were around, people knew about them, and then people start stopped writing them into the textbooks or started writing them out if they ever were in. And so as you go forward, I mean, that's what history is, right? It's who who's writing it. Mm. You know, you do have to look at like, well, who's writing it? Who's deciding what we know about and what we don't? And how does that affect future generations if they don't know that the people before them were capable of incredible things that did incredible things that contributed to everyday objects that you use all the time mm. if, you, if you don't know. At a time when there's so many negative black stories around at the moment it's great to have these stories that can help inspire kids to pursue their dreams and achieve greatness without a doubt without mm. a doubt last year you released your first novel yay how high the moon um tell me a little bit about that that was exciting um how high the moon is it's a um, historical fiction novel it's geared uh, really for a middle grade audience but though everyone can read it and it's uh it follows a little girl named ella in the Jim Crow South of the 1940s in, um, in a little town outside of South Carolina. And it's this, you know, it's the segregated South. Ella lives with her grandparents and her cousins who are all black in this little tiny town. And her mother, who's black, lives in Boston trying to be a jazz singer. And she doesn't know who her father is and if her father possibly is white because Ella is light-skinned and she gets made fun of and called zebra and so she doesn't know and you know what that would mean if he was white and so she gets the opportunity to spend some time with her mother up north and she does some investigating finds out some things about her mother that she um, didn't anticipate and also gets some clues about her dad who her dad might be and when she comes back to South Carolina uh, she's ready to, to investigate, and she finds out that her her friend, George Stinney Jr., has been arrested for the murder of two little white girls. And this character, George Stinney Jr., is based on a real person in history, in American history. Mm. Um, 14-year-old George Stinney Jr. was the youngest person ever executed in the United States at 14. And mm. um, he was so young, they had to put books underneath him so that he could fit properly with the apparatus that had to go on his head. Yeah, but he was wrongly convicted, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, many years later, after he'd been executed, though, this is, you know, decades later, um, it was retried. The case was retried, and they found out that the initial case was a sham, and he it was all thrown out. He was exonerated. But this is after the case. This is after the fact. They It was terrible how it was handled and what was done, and how they got a quote-unquote confession out of him, which no one could find. But a lot of people don't know about him. And when I would do research for Sweet Blackberry with little-known stories, George would come up, his face is pain, you know, this horrible face drained of hope, you know. Um, this mugshot would come up often. And people I spoke with didn't know who he was, and it pained me to think that, you know, this horrible tragedy happened and he just kind of, that's it. It was a little blip. So it made sense when I was writing this story. Um, it, it was just, it was awful all around and, um, and really heartbreaking. But I wanted people to know about George. And it just so happened he grew up in a little town outside of, of um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and around this time. And so did my mother, not the same town. But I, I had 
initially wanted to make a story where I could kind of see what her upbringing was like. She talked about it being so happy all the time, so positive. And I thought, how could you, you know, you lived in the Jim Crow South. What are you not telling me? Tell me more, you know? And so I started digging with her and I wanted to write to find out a little bit what it would be like if, if I took, a, you know, myself and I slid into my mom's shoes at 11, what, what that might look like. And so, and then as I was writing, George Stinney kind of appeared because George he didn't live that far away. And this was also a good opportunity to be able to bring him to readers to learn about him. And But writing to know, you know, I want to know a little bit of like what it was like, what his life may have been like a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, and put that in the story as well. And so um, that's how it all came about. I mean, you deal with quite mature topics for a, a book aimed at 8 to 11-year-olds. Obviously, yeah. you include George Stenny in the book, but quite early on, in the book, there's another character who finds a black family that's been lynched yeah. in the woods. So, I mean, I know you're doing historical fiction, but how do you decide how much is too much when you're writing yeah. you know, for a young audience? Yeah, it's it's touchy. I learned it right away with the first story um, of Sweet Blackberry. You know, I had wanted to do the journey of Henry Box Brown for so long. And when I sat down to actually write it, I thought, what am I doing? This is a book about slavery, I mean, a story about slavery for little kids. And I, I mean, immediately you start to realize this is horrific. And I came upon things like, you know, I have a whip in it and like, you know, like, do I have the whip in there? And then when we animated and illustrated, did we show the whip? Did we put the sound of the whip in its crack? You know, did we put a sound on Like how much is too much? And I was really happy with the work I was in my, in my, I was raising my children at this time. So I was very happy to see where a lot of my instincts were correct, but I did work with somebody. I have some, I still do. I have somebody um, who works with me uh, on an advisory level. So I'm not just by myself guessing what's appropriate. <laughs> I'd raise my kids and I'd tell them all kinds of stuff. <laughs> like, no, I've got somebody that I can, that can kind of be like, Oh, Karen, you can tell your kids that, but don't tell mine. You know, it's like, whatever. Um, so I'm not, I'm not just out there on my own, just like doing whatever I do, but with how high the moon, it was really touchy. You know, I have, did have my editors of course to talk to, but I've learned that young kids are ready for a lot more than we give them credit for. And, um, and truth and honesty is the most important thing. And I think having a place, a safe place for them to discover things and talk and ask questions is so important. It's really important with a classroom, with your parent to be able to talk about, I I read about this, to understand the characters and get into the whole, you know, the world of it, to have some perspective. I remember the first time I saw a picture of a lynching, a book off the shelves in my house. My mom thought I was learning about a lot of stuff in school that I was not learning about. Mm. And I saw a picture of a lynching and my back of my head blew off. (laughs) You know, I just, I, 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 I you know, you, as a kid, you don't know what you're looking at. It's, it's devastating. It's unreal. It's also so important. This happened mm. not that long ago, really. So it's horrifying, but it's important. And I wanted, I did want to have it in the book. I wanted it. I wanted the real climate of things to be present in the story. I wanted children to understand it so they can understand all aspects Mm. and get some perspective. You know, I don't, but I don't want it to just be like, you know, some snidely whiplash, like bad guys and good guys. You know, I don't want, I don't want to do that either. I want to show people human layers and how our environment and our society affects us and everyone Mm. and, um, and what needs to change. There's a line in How High the Moon, which stuck with me and felt particularly relevant this year, which was, what does sitting around watching evil do for anybody? you got to do something, say something. If you don't house evil, going to know it's not okay. Right. Because I think it's said immediately after Myrna sees the lynchings, I think, mm-hmm. in the book. Um, yeah. Was, was that just like you were thinking the key takeaway from this book is this, if people come away with nothing else, it's this one yeah. sentiment for change. Yeah, well, I think that the thing is, it's actually, it's Myrna who says it. And, and, it's, and that's part of the thing is there is sometimes a complacency with people who become used to like 
that's, you know, these are bad things. We don't want to question things. We don't want to stir things up. There's sometimes there's that attitude, which, you know, maybe her grandmother had a little bit of. There's Myrna. There are young people who are outraged, incensed by these things, and they should be. And hopefully it can propel them to action. When I was writing How High the Moon, almost every day that I opened up my computer, another black man in America had been killed. This was happening so often. Mm. It was, and I'm not saying this isn't something that's happening all the time, but in terms of getting media attention, it was a devastating time. It was the most frustrating, just painful, you know, like, again, like, it can't, that couldn't happen again. That happened again. You know, that happened again. You know, this was every, almost every day. And um, everyone was feeling it. Everyone was sick with it. And it was hard for it not to make its way. These, these things, this injustice, this awful, this stuff to make its way into the book. It's hard not to be deeply affected by what's going on in the world around you, you know. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's, that was where that came from. And I think it's, um, I think it makes sense. That's one thing I have in the, in the book as well, is you get the sense that Myrna and Ella are are very much affected by the things that they witness. And I'm really curious myself to see who they are going to be in the years to come, because mm. they would be the age of the civil rights fighters, a lot of these people. That's who they would then be. And, um, and that, that's part of what I wanted in there as well. As we see, you know, I don't know spoilers, but toward the end of the book, we see some things with Ella where I think this kind of awakening is um, present. Were your experiences of growing up biracial reflected in Ella's colorism experiences in terms of having a lighter skin tone? Yeah. Uh, yeah, some of it definitely. I think, you know, we talk about colorism not enough. Um, and there's so much... There's so much with colorism, but there's also this colorism all in all ways there, you know, there's so much, um, you know, within the black community, there's so much frustration and self-hatred and hatred within and resentment within. I got a lot of, you know, my whole life, not just as a little kid, as an adult too, uh, a lot of crap for being light-skinned and possibly treated. I mean, I saw it as a little kid, especially, you know, people patting you on the head and pinching your cheeks and just thought I was the cutest little thing. Um, and I knew a lot of the time it was because, or, or I'd have, I'd have black girls be going, oh, she has good hair. Look at her hair, you know. And even as a kid, it didn't ring right to me. I have good hair. Like, I have my hair nothing wrong with your hair. Like, this is just, you know, but I would sometimes get, you know, you could see how um, some of the things people said were true, that sometimes people treated a light-skinned person differently than they did a dark-skinned person. And, um, and it happened within the black community and outside of the black community. And um, so I was, you know, witnessed on, and, and I still do, uh, in all different ways. And I wish there was more talk about it. I just wish there was more talk, more openness about it, because I think that it's, it's not as simple as light-skinned people get preferential treatment, although I see it. And I think there's also, a, there's also this stuff that goes on within the black community that needs to be dealt with of, of looking sometimes at people who are light-skinned and and thinking, I don't know, it's, it's, it's messy stuff. And you see this in communities across the world where lighter skinned, fair haired, lighter eyed people get certain treatment. And often it comes from the darker people that are doing it too, that are projecting beauty onto people. And it's, it's frustrating. We need to talk about it more. We need to look at it more and what we're hmm. seeing of ourselves. You know, one of the things in the Sweet Blackberry, the Sweet Blackberry I talk about a lot is the Dolly experiment. And you see these little kids, they started the Dolly experiments in the 1940s, 1930s, 1940s. And they would give black children a white doll and a black doll and ask them who was the smart doll, who was the pretty doll. 
and, um, you know, across the board, these you know, black children would pick the white doll was the pretty doll. The white doll was the smart doll. The black doll was the bad doll. The black doll was the ugly doll. And they've done this all the way up until the present. They do the dolly test. And I have a clip on our website with Anderson Cooper on CNN asking a little girl, doing it with a little girl. And the little girl, she's so little. And she's pointing to her brown skin and saying brown is ugly for some reason. I don't know the reason, but, you know, it's mm. like they're, they're picking up the messages from society so young that they're bad and that they're ugly. And I just, I want people to recognize this and talk about this and get this mm. ugly pus out. This is just bad carried over stuff. You know, which is why it's so great what you're doing with Sleep Blackberry, and obviously we've said it's a non-profit, but you've been plugging away at it for 15 years now. <laughs> that's that's insanity. That's like the definition well, of insanity. I was going to say, what keeps you going, <laughs> and what are your ambitions for the future for Sleep Blackberry? Well, yeah, I sound like a crazy person. She just keeps chugging away at that thing. What's wrong with her? No. The <laughs> truth is, I get No, to... I meant I meant plugging away no. in the way of, of that it's a thing that needs constant work all the it time. Does. And it's nothing that's gonna be solved, you know, within the first five years of saying up sweet black no, It's no. something that is gonna need constant work. So the determination to plug away at it for 15 years and not take a salary at all and just do it because you know, for the love of humankind that you're doing it, yeah. you know, what, what keeps you going? The love of humankind. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. Um, but, but, but there's truth to that. I'm not even laughing. I'm joking. But I, when there's no pandemic going on, I get to go, uh, I get to travel to schools and visit with kids and screen the Sweet Blackberry films and talk to them, sometimes do a lesson together, but we get to talk and I get to, they ask me questions and we discuss the films. And I'm telling you, it's the best. It's my favorite thing to do because I go from kids from pre-K, from like little, little kids, all the way up to like the eighth graders, five-year-olds up to 13-year-olds, right? And it's really exciting to see, and they're very different. The questions that come from the older kids are very different from the questions that come from the younger kids. But I watch the films with them and they are so wrapped and interested and curious and I see their minds go and then I receive things from them often. I receive art and letters and comments. And um, it just the impact that these stories have on the kids. I know they're going in and planting seeds. We don't tell them full on history lessons. We just tell them some stuff. And it's like giving them a fairy tale, but make it about a real person. And they walk away with these seeds planted and it's, it awakens something in them. And I love that. And I know that when they get older, you know, they're going to be like, Bessie Coleman, I know who Bessie Coleman is. And then they'll want to look, they'll want to know more about her. Hmm. But it gives, in the meantime, it also tells them this black person did this. And they're, it excites them whether, you know, whether they're a black or brown child or a white kid that's watching and just looking at race a little bit differently, looking at their neighbor and the, and their value a little bit differently as they come into the world because they've learned about the accomplishments of these people that came before as opposed to a lot of the other nonsense that people mm. propagate. So I think it's it's exciting. I watch it. I see the impact. I hear, I talk to teachers, to educators and parents and their um, enthusiasm for for Sweet Blackberry. All that keeps, that's what keeps me going. I, they're all like, this is great. We love this. We want more of this. So I'm like, okay, I'll figure it out. <laughs> but so I was going to say that people, people can help out too, yes. can't they? Um, I know they can donate on the Sweet Blackberry website, website yes, for yes. Uh, future projects, but also people can volunteer and offer their skills. Absolutely. As well, and I can use it, you know, in terms of like with websites and all kinds of stuff. We, you know, we're a nonprofit organization. We can, we can use we can use the help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would like I, I would love to see. We were on Netflix for a while. We were on HBO for a while. And we were on Netflix for a while. I would love to see um, Sweet Blackberry be offered and available to families everywhere. Um, that was that was what I'd love to see, and I'd love to be able to do more films. I have so many. I don't want to have to do them every few years like we've been mm. doing. I'm hoping to get to a place soon 
or we can put up a lot of these stories. Um, there are so, so many. And I think the time, I think people are really open and ready too uh, right now to, um, to learn more. People are reaching out and I'm doing panels and people are saying, because there's a lot awakening in the world and people are saying, I think it is time we knew more about black history. Mm. Um, I think it's time that we leaned in and we listened and we made some changes to things that we know have been wrong and imbalanced. And we've, a lot of us have kind of turned a blind eye to, or we've, you know, conveniently not really dealt with because there's so much in the world to deal with or whatever. And it's not affecting me directly. And I think a lot of people are changing how they feel about that. They're not okay mm -hmm. with the status quo. And so um, I've had a lot of people express interest in making change and bringing a lot of things to their uh, to their school and their curriculum that they didn't focus on before. So I think Sweet Blackberry fits in really well with that and can help. Mm. Last question. Yeah. You've just made a film as well. That's a real family affair because <laughs> your, your husband's written and directed it and both your son and your daughter, who's a spitting image of you, by the way. She looks so beautiful. She looks exactly <laughs> like you. They star on it mm -hmm. with you yeah. as well. What was that like as a, I don't know, it's like going to work with all your, uh, all your family? Yeah, it was really interesting. It was, it was, it was cool. It was a, a cool way to do things. Yeah, the film's called Sweet Thing. And my husband, uh, Alex Rockwell, Alexander Rockwell, he's the writer and director of it. And um, my daughter, Lana Rockwell is stars in it, as does Nico. Lana is really the protagonist, her character, Billy. And, um, and Nico, my son, is in it along with her. And they're so good. They're really good. <laughs> I mean, they, they did a movie with uh, Alex a few years ago. He's done lots of other films, but he did a film with the two of them a few years ago when they were like seven and three, I think, called um, Little Feet, which is a beautiful film. I'm not in that. But it's a beautiful film about childhood. It's kind of like a little dream. Um, and that's a great film. So if anyone can find Little Feet, it's really charming and lovely. Um, and this is Sweet Thing. And Sweet Thing is also, it's kind of like a little bit of a carry-on. You know, years later, Lana, I think, is 16 in the film, I think. And 15, 16. And um, then Nico's four years younger and which, whichever age she is in it. And um, it's very uh, moving. Um, Will Patton, incredible actor, is in it as well. And, um, and I had, I play a really nasty character. <laughs> <laughs> did your husband have you in mind for that when he wrote it? <laughs> he did. What does that say? He insisted I play this awful beast. <laughs> Only you can do this. I know, personally. Only you can do this. Um, yeah, I'm a bit of a monster. Um, so that was really interesting, to act with my kids and be a beast, be this really ugh, ugly, icky character. Um, it was fun, too. <laughs> and I'm like, afterward, you know, cut. Are you okay? You know, that's, you know I'm acting, right? You know I'm acting. <laughs> My kids are looking at me like, I don't want to talk to you. I need, I need to, some time. I need some space to get over you. But it was fun. And um, yeah, it was a real family affair. It was, and it was great because it was very much like, you know, I think the best films, I think my husband I know has the most fun when he does films that are um, kind of guerrilla filmmaking. You're like out there and you're like stealing shots and you're doing, because also he's, I shouldn't say this, get him in trouble, but he's, um, he's a, he's, a, he's the head of directing at NYU. He's a, you know, he's a professor. He's like t teaching. He has to tell everybody like, be careful, get things signed, do this, do it all by the book. <laughs> and then he goes out and he's like, let's get that shot. What do we have to do to get that shot? <laughs> Climb up there. <laughs> you know, you know like, are the kids safe? I don't know. Let's just shoot it. <laughs> pretty rough <laughs> I always tease I came onto the set of, of Little Feet once and they were shooting Little Feet and I came to visit the set and I'm looking at my daughter and she's shooting something and she looked like delirious and I'm like I, in between I went up and I felt her head she's on fire I'm like she's sick as a dog what is she doing like, where's the union when you need them come get my kid and said, and said I did it I'm like sorry she's done I was the union 
I had to be the tough guy. Sorry, she's done for the day. <laughs> Shoot something else. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it's a really beautiful film. Right before the pandemic struck, we were actually in Berlin and uh, took a really great prize home, which was really exciting. Took a crystal bear home. That's great. And yeah, and so we were on this whole, like, we were all high with the film, like, yes, it's going to all these festivals. We're getting ready to go to Tribeca and we're going to do this. And, and then it was like, shut down pandemic key coronavirus coronavirus damn you covid so um so that that just stopped everything and uh so we know i don't know where it goes from here exactly my my husband's talking to people dealing with stuff and i'm out of it. hopefully when uh covid's over it will pick back up i know it's hard yeah. to regain that momentum probably but hopefully some things will happen because it's a lovely film and uh and it's, it should be seen. I think people really will 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 enjoy it and love it. Karen, it's been so lovely to talk to you today. Um, I hope that Sweet Blackberry grows from strength to strength. It's brilliant what you're doing, and I take my cap off to you. Thank you. Um, and um, best of luck with the second novel that I hear that you're writing. As well. oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. I await that with great anticipation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so much. This was really nice talking to you. Wasn't Karen lovely? It was great fun to reminisce with her and at the same time, both inspiring and thought-provoking. Sweet Blackberry is a brilliant foundation. If you'd like to find out more or if you're able to donate or offer your time and skills, go to sweetblackberry.org. As ever, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you for choosing this one. If you'd like to get in touch to say hello, you can find me on Instagram at Celebrity Catch-Up Podcast or on Twitter at Celeb Catch-Up Pod. And if you'd like to support the show, you can buy me a coffee. Find out more in the show notes. Thank you so much to those of you that have already done that. I really appreciate it. Or please share the podcast with a friend or on social media or leave a rating or a review. Every little helps. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>